The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Thanks to funding from the British Podcast Awards Fund and Welcome Trust, I'm embarking on a series of conversations under the banner Theory in the Flesh. I borrow the term Theory in the Flesh from and with gratitude to our feminist and QTPOC elders to draw attention to the health inequalities and disparities experienced by queer black people in the UK. The conversations convened under Theory in the Flesh explore sexual racism, masculinity, black women in medical research and therapy, and should hopefully, if I've done my job, provide a window into just some of the many considerations we have to make as queer black people in the UK about our health. I hope you all enjoy these conversations. Our livelihood, our health, our thriving is of the utmost importance to me, and a great deal of care, thought, and research has gone into these conversations. If you have a few minutes, I would be so grateful if you could show your support for Busy Being Black by filling out a short, anonymous, and data-protected survey about Theory in the Flesh. You can do that at podcastviews.com. The whole purpose of the third sector is to make sure that we're supporting and, and helping people who are most at risk in, in society, right? And, and we can see now that those people predominantly are people of colour. So therefore, this is the space um, that, you know, the third sector should really be holding right now um, and holding not only like governments to account, but, you know, making sure that they're providing that support for those people, for people of colour who are most at risk and who are most vulnerable. In a powerhouse TED Talk titled The Problem with Race-Based Medicine, social justice advocate and law scholar Dorothy E. Roberts says, race is not a biological category that naturally produces health disparities because of genetic difference. Race is a social category that has staggering biological consequences, but because of the impact of social inequality on people's health. The novel coronavirus COVID-19 is not racist. It is a highly contagious virus that moves with ease from person to person and which takes advantage of compromised immune systems and structural inequalities. COVID-19 is hitting black and minority ethnic communities the hardest because of racism. As long as medical institutions, scientists, researchers, and the public continue to ignore the institutionalized, structural, and everyday racism that makes us vulnerable to ill health in the first place, our communities will continue to be disproportionately impacted time and time again. Today, I'm in conversation with Camille Sin-Omer and Martha Awajobi, two of the 10 team members leading Charity So White. The organization was founded in 2019 to call attention to the racism in the charity sector and to provide a pathway to a sector representative of the vulnerable and at-risk communities it exists to serve and support. Charity So White has issued a live position paper, which is being updated every week and which offers not only crucial insight into the disproportionate impact of COVID-19 on black and minority ethnic communities, but practical and important suggestions for the necessary way forward. 
Camille and Martha remind us that in the midst of this crisis, we have an opportunity to redress the systemic injustices that continue to leave so many of our people behind. I'm Josh Rivers, and I'm Busy Being Black with Camille Sinomer and Martha Awajobi of Charity So White. Um, one of you said that you're a queer woman of color. We're both. We're both queer. Oh, amazing! Both, yeah, both, oh, yes. <laughs> that's yeah. amazing. We actually dated each other. That's how queer women of color we are. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> oh, amazing! <laughs> Did you ever think that you'd have that kind of response as well? Like when I never thought that I would tell people that I'm gay, and they'd be like, "Yes!" <laughs> you know, like so excited. Oh, I get okay, very so. excited about being a queer person. Anytime yeah. I get an opportunity to talk about it, I'm like, let me tell you about my story. <laughs> I said to my friends the other day, I said, I need people to know that I'm gay when I walk into a room. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> and I don't know if that's a generational thing, as in, you know, when I came out when I was 16, um, there weren't, I, it was in Georgia, there weren't a lot of queer people mm-hmm. that I saw. And, um, and I think many queer people struggle for so long with their sexuality, mm-hmm. right? With their identity. And so that when I came out, I was like, that's it. I'm never going to be ashamed of who I am. Yeah. And so I walk into a room and I'm like, this is me. (laughs) I am Josh Rivers. I'm gay. (laughs) We should just open the podcast like that. (laughs) Yeah, we're already recording. Oh, okay. Fine. We're here. So I think well, let's go one by one. Uh, actually, let's talk about first about the genesis of Charity So White. Martha or Camille, um, if you can tell me, which one of you, be- did you begin it together, Charity So White? Exactly yeah. the same time. Okay. And so what, what's the, talk to us about the genesis of Charity So White. In August last year, um, one of our fellow organizers was at a training that was being run by Citizens Advice. Um, and saw a slide that had lots of stereotypes about communities of colour and things that people need to be wary of when they interact with people like us. Um, And some of the things were quite shocking um, and incredibly racist, things like low levels of literacy, um, an intrinsically cash-centred... Oh, yeah! (laughs) An intrinsically cash-centred culture, um, you know, distrust of the authorities, just like sweeping generalisations. Um, so she tweeted about it saying, you know, Citizens Advice, have you got anything to say about this racist, um, this racist training slide? Um, they didn't respond. Um, so her and a couple of other people got together, created this hashtag Charity So White, which kind of happened just after Oscar So White. Um, so it was quite relevant. Um, and I think it's a really catchy name. Um, um, and asked people to tweet about their experience of racism in the third sector. Um, so me and Camille work um, for charities. Um, and the response was overwhelming. About 3,000 people tweeted about their, their experience of racism in the first day. Um, and yeah, and the campaign kind of really came to life then. Um, and since then, we've been completely unstoppable, I think. Camille, what made you get involved with, with Charity So White? What was it about this that you felt you could contribute? Um, Well, I think like, as Martha mentioned, we both work um, in the sector um, and I think it's not surprising. Well, I think some people are surprised, often white people are surprised (laughs) um, that it's a very different experience, um, especially if not only you're a person of colour, but also a woman of colour. 
um, and Martha and I actually attended the same um, kind of event that was on, so we're both fundraisers, and there was like a fundraising event that was looking at, they're called the Change Collective, and they were looking at how we kind of diversify the sector and how we can kind of shift the needle when it comes to kind of power and privilege. Um, and that's kind of where I met Martha and we were talking about how we can, I guess, get more involved and kind of find other people who are like us, like they, we must exist. Um, and I think it was the first time that I'd ever been around another black fundraiser was when I met Martha at that event. Um, and then I first went to, they have a, we've got kind of like a sister organization called People of Color Impact. Um, and it's a bit more wholesome. It's a bit more about kind of telling our stories, sharing our lived experience. It's a very different kind of um, space. Um, but from that, they were kind of uh, recruiting, as you call it, for people to come and be a bit more, I guess, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, a bit more radical um, in being able to challenge um, the sector and tackle racism and kind of call out leaders to be accountable to tackling that racism within the sector and actually acknowledge that it exists. Um, so yeah, that was the first way kind of I got involved. And I think more than anything, it was a real desire to be in a space where there were other people of color where we could discuss firstly, it's always good to have a bit of a moan, um, but firstly kind of what impacts us. Um, and then also to be able to be in a space where we can actually be here to win, like to actually see change um, and to see something being done about it. Quite often I find, um, certainly from my experience, that often spaces, um, especially for people who are a minority, I guess, minority groups, um, often kind of stay in that realm of just maybe being a bit of a, a fleeting visit. Um, so it's kind of like a hot topic for a while and it's an opportunity to get together and have a big old moan. But sometimes it's quite challenging for us to then move forward. Um, and I think that's what really excited me about Charity So Why, that the biggest part of it is about us actually shifting that needle. We're actually here, as we always say, we're here to win. Um, and that means that, you know, for us, um, that's actually seeing real change in the sector, not just discussing and talking about it. And so what are we up against in the third sector? So I got two questions. One, how does the race, how's the racism manifest and how does the racism manifest in the third sector? And two, what are some of the statistics as, you know, we know in media, for example, that 94.4% of newsrooms are white, that 52% of all journalists, employed journalists um, in these new rooms are men. Do we have comparable statistics that we could look at for the third sector? Um, we do, we do have statistics, but we actually don't don't use them. Um, we tend to value lived experience um, over using statistics. I think often we you know we all know that EDI becomes a numbers game, um, and we're really like anti-using statistics because you don't need statistics to see that the majority of leaders are white men, and the people that are in service delivery positions, the people that are on the front line in COVID, for example, are people of color. Um, so we're yeah we're we're kind of. I think we've done, we've had a lot of like shocking statistics that we've heard over, you know, my 10 careers in, in 10 careers, my 10 years, um, <laughs> my 10 careers in the jury sector. Um, but actually having those statistics like doesn't really, um, hasn't really got us anywhere. Um, and it is more about centering the voices of those people with lived experience and allowing people to tell their stories of their experience in the charity sector. Now that's quite remarkable, because you know I, I you know that I'm doing a series now called Theory in the Flesh, which is exploring the, which is bringing the theory of it's exploring healthcare and research um, for queer Black people in the UK particularly, right? How are we impacted by health research that continues to overlook our 
our experiences that continues to erase us from um, medical models, et cetera. And one of the things I'm finding is that within research, space for this qualitative analysis really isn't made, right? The lived experience isn't as valuable as the hard data for whatever reason, which is probably a relic from an older time, but also our reliance upon statistics and numbers as if that would change the as if that might change an attitude or, you know, what does Patrice Culler say? You can't write out racism, right? Changing the law doesn't necessarily work. And I suppose statistics and data is much the same way. I mean, the thing is, is as well, especially in the sector, we've had the statistics and we've been having the statistics for a really long time. Um, and often what it's used for then is an argument to say, oh, we need to do some more research on this. Yeah, um, or let me check paper. the statistics. <laughs> yeah, let's write a paper. Although we've done a paper, but it's a different paper. Um, but let's write a paper <laughs> on like, you know, <laughs> how many, um, you know, white people there are in this organization. And actually it just sidelines and avoids the real conversation um, and puts excuses in place. Um, and I think it means that therefore, you see as well, it kind of can then result in things like policies being changed um, or like, so things that are written on paper, for example. Um, so we know that kind of with kind of EDI policies, then lots of people in the sector have been making changes to make sure that they're recruiting um, kind of for an EDI lens. Um, but Just for listeners, EDI right. is Equality, Diversity and Inclusion. Thanks, yeah. So All my on. acronyms. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but actually that hasn't changed kind of the impact and and kind of the um, sort of interpersonal um, kind of racism that exists as well. Um, and I think in terms of how people feel, whether it's like microaggressions um, or whether it's about the impact that we're having with um, kind of the people that we're supporting on the ground, that hasn't changed the face of the charities that are supposed to be reflecting the communities that they serve. So we've had the data, we've had the research, um, yet nothing has changed. So I think shifting that conversation to talking about lived experience means that you can actually have a much more open and honest conversation that actually leads to real difference. I think you're completely right. And it's that kind of, I think statistics, you can say there's X amount of people of colour in an organisation, but that statistic doesn't say the organisation is racist. So I think it's, yeah, it's really hard to be like, what's a statistic that backs up racism? Um, and it can, yeah, it's, it, I think statistics can be used and misused. Um, and it's actually a lot easier to just be like, okay, forget the statistics. Let's just have a conversation about the fact that there is racism here. Mm, that's interesting. The, so I was, I was in my research for this conversation, I was looking at a report released by the Institute of Race Relations. Um, this is a couple years ago. And they were, they had come to realize, quote, that the problem of race relations is not a matter of individual attitudes, but the workings of a system which creates and perpetuates racial injustice within its institutions. So it must be quite hard to quantify that, right? Yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It is, yeah. And I think in trying to quantify it, you delay the process of actually doing anti-racist work. Um, action is what's needed. Um, systematic change is what's needed. Um, and that's only going to happen from being able to, you know, have these really difficult conversations um, to seek public accountability and to actually put the work in. And so as part of the work that Charity So White is doing is helping facilitate conversations within the third sector that say, you know, outside of COVID-19, here are, here are the issues, here are the bar barriers, here is the institutionalization of racism, and here's how we confront it. Yeah, um, yeah, we talk about institutional racism, and although that I think I've mentioned kind of equality 
diversity and inclusion quite a bit just already. We actually don't talk about that. Um, what we talk about often is power and privilege, um, which again means that we're putting ourselves in a situation where, again, we're not looking at that data and research, but we're actually talking about shifting that power dynamic as well, because I think when we go on to talk about the paper, we'll probably explore it a little bit more, but power is often in, well, is in the hands um, of these larger institutions, which are predominantly being led and decisions being made by white men. Um, and therefore what needs to happen is a shift in that power to centering people with lived experience, um, but not just in a tokenistic way, where it's like, we've heard that people with lived experience say X, but actually bringing those people with lived experience to the table and um, to the decision-making table um, so that they can make decisions on things that are gonna impact them and their communities because they understand and they know that best. The thing is, the, thing, the things that we say and the things that we do are very, very simple, but I think when you simplify it and take it out of this, this kind of like, you know, statistics world and just say very simply like, this is racism, this is, um how 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 we can discuss racism how we can like we've literally printed off a list of questions for people to have those conversations like we're not even asking people to think themselves about how to have a conversation because we've enabled that um which which i think is really really important and like you know what we're discovering is that people's fear around talking about racism is because they don't one don't know what racism is and they think that if i say your organization is racist i'm somehow saying that you <laughs> or a horrible, nasty racist person um you know it's, it's that it's that kind of like sh like shifting of conversations um to more bra braver ones we call it brave spaces not safe spaces because you will you will not change from a place of comfort and i think um i was like i was, I was at a talk recently and this um white man who works for a foundation who um he said that it's a privilege to be able to avoid discomfort and people of color in the charity sector are feeling comfort, discomfort all the time because of the way the sector treats us. And you know, a lot of it is without them even realizing. Um, and it's unfair for privileged people to say, I'm gonna ignore, I'm gonna, I'm gonna not feel discomfort because you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna stay in my comfort zone. I'm gonna do exactly the same thing that I was doing before. And I'm gonna sit in my own comfort and expect anything to change um because they know that something needs to change like the sector is quite aware that there's something wrong but they just they're like there's not enough equality diversity and inclusion when really there is structural racism yeah and i think there was a report that came out years ago a study was done into um and this is over in the us i think they sent a there were there were a number of black students who were freshmen and at an ivy league university and actually the dropout rate after the first year is 90%, right? Because when these black students get into this environment, they feel that they don't belong. There is nothing to support them in this transition into a different space. And I should make clear that these black kids were from lower socioeconomic backgrounds, right? So they weren't used to these kind of spaces, but had excelled in school and were, you know, earned these places at these elite universities, but never didn't stay because they, they didn't feel like they belonged there. So that's an example, I think, of, of structural racism. And the charity sector has a, has a big issue with that. Um, I definitely think, like, especially from what I've seen in terms of actually being able to maintain, retain, rather, um, staff. And it's not just down to the fact that we don't necessarily feel comfortable or represented, but it's also down to, again, that institutional racism, the fact that there are not necessarily things in place that, that help us to develop in that way or to um, give us access um, to be able to be in those rooms where decisions are being made um, or as you were mentioning earlier Martha like being able to see people in those 
positions of power um, that we also can kind of see ourselves in to want to be to be in to to think that being in those spaces is possible. Mm. So Charity So White is combating racism um, within structural and institutional racism within the charity sector in order to provide more opportunities for and space for uh, people of color, but also so those services and programs can be designed and funded effectively. I couldn't right? have like, done it better myself, yeah. to be honest. Yeah, I know. I was like, <laughs> I was so just yeah, like, and Charity So White has issued a live position paper. Talk to me about the importance of issuing a live position paper. Um, well, the reason that it's live is just because the crisis is just unfolding constantly as we go along. Um, we don't want to make any kind of like snap judgments without giving people fair fair due to actually do something in in the in the crisis. And also, we are a team of ten, right? Yeah, we're a team of ten. We don't know everything. Um, we want this to be a super collaborative piece um, because you know we're not experts in every single field, um, and we want to firstly involve people who um, have been doing this work for a lot longer than us. You know, we're all quite young people. Um, we've got a lot of fight, but we don't necessarily have all of that experience. So we're just asking for as much contribution from people who are working in the sector who work with BAME organisations and who will be on the front line in COVID um, for as much as much as possible, so that we've got the most robust piece that we possibly could have um yeah and make sure that you know we're getting the getting it in front of the right people and holding people to account because there is no yeah there's 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 no excuse right now i think at the moment race should be on everybody's lips as you've seen you know the like the majority of people who are on the front line who are dying are people of color um and if that information is yeah, it's not out there. And if we're not actually giving people some like advice or like places that they can go to firstly learn a little bit more about why this is affecting people of colour more, but also giving people like some clear guidance on what to do next, these conversations will fall. Like, and that's what's happened over and over again when a crisis happens, you know, looking at our, our most vulnerable communities falls behind. Another importance of it being quite live is the fact that everyone in the sector is making decisions so quickly. We're all responding so fast. So therefore we want to make sure that each with each new decision and designing of programs or deciding on how to distribute funding, for example, we're getting to make sure that we're making that those recommendations on behalf of people of colour colour in our communities to make sure that our voices are being heard. Um, and like you said, Martha, yeah, no excuse um, for not kind of having that evidence or that data or whatever it is that people require to be able to see um, the kind of disproportionate impact that this um, crisis is having on people of colour. Um, and I think you also mentioned, Martha, that we've seen time and time again in previous crises, such as the response to Grenfell, for example, um, you know, where BAME-led organisations have lost out on things like funding or BAME-led organisations were not heard simply because larger organisations um, kind of took that space. So I think there's a real call for, you know, those organisations in the sector to really kind of give up that space. Um, and really think about how they can center those those voices. And so this live position paper is like it's like Charity So White stepping on the necks of the sector, right? <laughs> Saying, this is what needs to happen, this is what needs to happen now, and this is what needs to happen continuously. Yeah. And I think the thing is we're not trying to like burn down the sector. Like it's not, we're not like stepping on their necks to just be like, 
we want to like get at this like we love the sector we work within the sector like the whole point is that we want to be able to make it better for the people who who we serve well it's applying the pressure i mean um so let's go through because i think for listeners who I'll, I'll include some um, really important links in the show notes that go through some of the, the key statistics associated with um, the vulnerability of black and minority ethnic people, both here in the UK and in the US um, to COVID-19. But I know one of them that was most shocking was that as of a couple of days ago, 100% of the doctors who had died from coronavirus um, in the UK are BAME, black and minority ethnic. Yeah. And I think it's important to note that um, they were all Muslim as well. Um, and we have a serious Islamophobia problem um, in the UK and all over the world. Um, and yeah, that is something that links them all together and something that, yeah, we need to be aware of that intersectionality of their race and their faith there. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. I think one of the things that's really blown my mind is is both here and in the US, and I, I'm, I'm trying to keep it global, right? I, you guys are here to speak about the UK, but we have a lot of listeners in the US. And I think there seems to be, to me at least, a lot of robust numbers coming out of the, of the US, perhaps because of the sheer scale of um, Black communities in particular in the US. But these structural vulnerabilities, as I heard someone describe them, are not just in the US, they're not just in the UK, like this racism, this structural vulnerability that black people in particular and, and other minority ethnic um, South Asian communities, East Asian communities, this is built into the system. This is this is baked in, right? And I think that 100% of, of doctors dying is a really interesting intersection to look at, right? Because not only is a doctor supposed to be this esteemed position, but it is occupied mostly by Black and minority ethnic people who are on the front lines, but also those who are working in um, the service sector, right? Who are driving buses, et cetera, both here and in the U.S. These are all people of color, namely Black women. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think there's two things there. Um, the first thing I think I wanted to pick up on is the fact that, like you said, they're, but yet they're not the people who are being, especially in the media, um, who are being kind of praised and uh, celebrated for being on those front lines. I mean, just before this crisis, low-skilled workers was what they were called. Um, suddenly the phrasing has now changed to be around kind of key heroes. workers. Yeah, heroes <laughs> and key workers. Um, so I think there's a big piece around that kind of celebrating the fact that um, black and brown people are the ones that are on those front lines um, and therefore are most in, at risk. And that language there is important. A key worker is not necessarily a skilled worker. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So that delineation, the language is very important. They haven't become skilled, exactly. skilled, skilled workers. They've become key ones and key for a crisis. It's fascinating to watch this unfold. I mean, you saw the notes that I sent through about this, about this. Um, this position paper, I think it's brilliant. And I'm encouraging all of our listeners to really read it and keep an eye on it. I couldn't stop reading it. <laughs> I was just like, this is, and normally these papers are quite dry, right? Um, but I, th I think that this, what you, what you all have done, and you're all volunteers, right? It, what you all have done in your spare time and out of pure passion 
is really something to behold. And I'll obviously include a link to the position paper in the show notes. Thank you. We've, we're updating it once a week. Um, yeah, so it's going to keep keep going. Um, so I've updated it over the weekend with some new stuff on domestic abuse and education. Um, and each member of the team will be updating it on like a weekly basis to make sure that it just stays relevant um, and that we're including like the most up-to-date information. Um, I think that's something that's really special and it's kind of it's amazing to like be part of this crew of people who are doing a huge favour to everyone else. Um, it brings me such <laughs> life to be part of Charity So White. Like we constantly talk about it in our meetings about how much joy um, that we kind of get from being in um, this kind of collective together. I mean, you're following in the footsteps of incredible queer black women, right? You know, and queer women of colour who since time have been making immeasurable contributions to our collective understanding of what it means to live, love, die, exist, you know, in Britain. And um, I also just wanted to highlight the fact that like, being part of Charity So White as well, not only allows me to bring kind of, or us to bring ourselves in terms of um, our color um, or our race, um, but actually it allows us to bring our whole self to that picture as well. Like we get to talk about the work that we love, that we're super passionate about us personally as who we are like our queerness our femininity whatever it may be and um, and we get to do it in kind of a realm of love but also with that action it's kind of got that kindness at the heart um but also that real kind of powerful action and it and it really is a special place and um, i'd like to highlight that again the, the personal is political isn't it right and there's nearly impossible for me as a queer black man to not have a conversation at that specific intersection of queerness and blackness. I can only imagine what it's like um, for queer women of color and queer black women because that, you know, those intersections um, <laughs> expand almost infinitely, right? <laughs> and so being able to bring your full self, I imagine not only um, widens the lens, right? Adds some much needed nuance and texture to what you're fighting for. Okay, so in this, um, because I'm conscious of time as well, and, and you all have things that you're doing. So, um, so the purpose of this paper is to outline the impact of COVID-19 on BAME communities, which is to say, here are the specific areas in which our communities are being impacted. Um, and you've set out five key principles to guide the third sector's response to COVID-19. Okay, let's start with one. Now is the time to address racial inequalities in our sector. Say more about that. You'll, you'll, you'll see over and over again that people make a choice about when they're going to focus on racial inequality or any kind of oppression, right? As though that is separate from their day jobs. When you're not doing your job correctly, if it's racist, <laughs> um, and you're definitely not responding to a crisis correctly with a humanitarian lens, if it's not got a racial justice lens too. So it is, we're trying to, make people understand that you cannot do one without the other. You cannot tackle this crisis without tackling racist injustice at the same time. Um, and it should be an intersectional approach. Like we know that it is a class issue and a race issue at the same time. Um, I have a garden. I'm having, I'm, I, I, I am okay. I am a person of color and I'm not on the front line, but like when the intersection of race and class come together, like you can see the disproportionate impact that is having on people who are in you know cramped um like cramped living conditions multi-generational households on that you know coming into contact being forced to come into contact um yeah there, there is no way to divorce the two the, the question i thought of um at that first key principle which is now is the time to address racial inequalities in our sector is what makes it easier 
to address why is it easier to address during a crisis, right? If, if organizations have heretofore been unable to meaningfully account for black life and, and the lives of people of color in their organizations, in their funding, in their outreach, in their programmatic design, what will allow them to do it under duress, like in the middle of a crisis? I think because actually we're seeing it not only happen in the sector, but um, kind of, you know, across, across the world, that this is like, as everyone keeps saying, unprecedented times. Um, but we're really seeing kind of the rule book being ripped apart. Um, and it's a, it's, a, it's a time where people are making kind of new um, policies and changes and, and there's so much kind of happening in this space. Um, and these kind of changes are gonna last for a long time. Um, and therefore that impact that even though we're kind of making those decisions very quickly now, the impact is gonna be felt for years after this. So I think it's easy to make these decisions now because we're seeing them doing it everywhere. They're making so many quick decisions about other things. So actually this is a time to make sure that we're doing that in terms of kind of looking at it through a racial justice lens as well. I mean, I get the feeling that we're actually looking at a humanitarian crisis. Is that really dramatic to say? No, I don't think it's that dramatic, you know? Like, it's, you, people are dying at a rate that <laughs> is unbelievable. And it is, it's, it's, it is specific types of people. That is what we see in natural disasters, in wars, in famines, the poor, dark-skinned people are the people that suffer the most. And just because it's happening on British soil and we're not used to having humanitarian crises happen, maybe we want, we're not quick to label it as one, but this is, you know, people of colour dying. How, how is that not a crisis? How is that not a humanitarian crisis, you know? Um, I don't think anything's dramatic when it comes to the life of, of my community, of people of, people of colour. Um, but certainly at this time as well, we're seeing that the third sector really has a role to play in this. Um, the whole purpose of the third sector is to make sure that we're kind of um, supporting and, and helping people who are most at risk in, in society, right? Um, and we can see now that those people predominantly are people of colour. So therefore, this is the space um, that, you know, the third sector should really be holding right now um, and holding not only like governments to account, but, you know, making sure that they're providing that support for those people, for people of colour who are most at risk and who are most vulnerable. Yeah, I mean, so this leads us on to point two, which is acknowledge the power you hold, don't distance yourselves from it. Again, I didn't, I don't think of the third sector and think of power per se, but I guess, of course, if it's run mostly by white men, it, it will be quite a powerful. Yeah, if you think about it, like the um, the grants and the grant grants and philanthropy exists in the third sector, and these are incredibly wealthy bodies that actually can decide, um, especially when it's when it's like. Um, working in education and in health, like they can decide like the way our society is structured um, and the way that funding is allocated, which projects are important, what needs to, what, what can die basically. Um, our sector has a lot more power than people think. And I think when we, like, what did Rishi Sunak call us the other day? Um, oh, it was gentle. the gentle he said sector. Gentle. And I, we are not gentle. I work for a domestic <laughs> violence charity and nothing about what I do is gentle. Um, so it's, um, I think, I think there is, I think there is, um, a real kind of like shift around like language, I guess, when it comes to talking about the third sector and about like the kind of, um, the kind of havoc we can actually wreak um, if we are not held to account, if people who have power are not held to account, they're working with vulnerable communities. That's an enormous amount of people that they have a direct influence on. 
Um, so yeah, it's definitely understated the amount of power that there is in the third sector. We definitely think that the acknowledging that power is so important. And I like lots of conversations that we have um, with people are like, okay, I've got all this power, so I'm just going to give it away to you. Uh, <laughs> like, that's not helpful. <laughs> also, not how it works, right? <laughs> it's like all of a sudden I've got it and now I'm white, really? Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, I can walk down the street unharassed. Fabulous. Right? Yeah, it's a real kind of like, you know, distancing yourself from that power as though it's like something ugly that you need to pretend you don't have when really it's something that you can use to empower whole communities, to empower, you know, your member, the the member of staff that really needs support to get that promotion. Um, It's, yeah, it's, 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 you have, you have to like hold it, be aware of your power and like use it. Giving it away, which is impossible. (laughs) Yeah, people have kind of... And so what's, what's the action that Charity So White is helping facilitate here around acknowledge, the acknowledging of power within the industry? Because these are, I imagine, quite a high level, this is, a, I imagine, quite a high level conversation to be having, right? Because, you know, the funding bodies, the CEOs, those who are designing programs, the fundraisers themselves, I mean, many organizations will have to pivot their outlook, right? There, there will, obviously, there's obviously a group of organizations um, or groups of organizations working at this intersection of, of race and sexuality, race and HIV, race and domestic violence, et cetera. Um, but what about, those, what about those people in positions of power who have not been using that power? How's that conversation taking place? So one of the things um, that we're calling for at the moment um, is we've got an open letter Um, which is basically calling now that we know that um, the charity sector are going to receive some some funding and certainly I don't think it goes far enough but that isn't the argument that we're kind of uh, facing at the moment Um, but 750 million and I think our ask at the moment is to ensure that those people who are making that decision about how to distribute um, that funding is done for an is done equitably um, and also that 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 there is someone on that decision-making table and um, when that money is given to the sector that actually is making decisions in the interest of BAME communities. Um, and I think more importantly, it would be best to have someone from BAME communities and BAME organisations to be in that space and in that room um, to make sure that, yeah, the funding is distributed in a way not like we've seen previously um, in previous crises. Um, we've also made a call for some of that funding to be ring-fenced as well. Um, to BAME-led um, organisations. Um, again, that's another way of ensuring that potentially if there are not, if our voices are not necessarily heard at that decision-making table, there is at least a proportion of that money that will be ring-fenced towards people who need it. This money is going to an incredibly, it's going to, incredi- it's going to an incredibly powerful organisation that will then decide how the money is distributed. So historically, um, that um, that distribution from yeah organizations like this um, have not had you know uh, poor and vain people at, at their heart um, so we are making sure that it's funneled in the right way um, because it's not even like the decision makers at the top it's then they they give it to other people who then funnel who will then give it to other people who will then funnel um, and yeah it's just going to get lost in that process and i think so much in the third sector because everything is kind of done by 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 coalitions right so it can't just be um domestic violence for black women it has to be domestic violence for all women it can't be just hiv interventions for 
queer men of color. It has to be HIV interventions for all men and some queer men of color. So it's it's bureaucracy, I guess, plus a, a diluting of of funding, right? Isn't it? Yeah. And that does dilute the real problem. The real problem is some groups are disproportionately affected by something. If you say this 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 funding is for everybody, then in the public public mind, they will think that everybody is affected in the same way. It can be quite tiring um, because you see this happen like so frequently that you know it's that kind of blanket. Here's a problem. Everybody is affected in the same way, um, and then you know the all lives matter crew have kind of won. <laughs> so. um, I was having this conversation actually with my mom the other day and she was saying, she asked the question actually, why is the virus like killing our people? Um, and it was kind of having to break down and explain to my mother, who is also a woman of colour, obviously, and you know, having to explain to her that it isn't the virus that is deliberately killing black people. It isn't because we have a particular genetic makeup and that means we are more susceptible necessarily. I mean, well, certainly the research hasn't come out so far to prove that. Um, what it is, is that institutional racism, that structural inequality that has put us at the bottom for so long and, and people who are poor and people who um, are people of color who don't have access to uh, kind of um, public funding and all sorts of things, um, which means that we're even more severely impacted now. Um, so yeah, I was having to really break it down for my mom. I feel like that's now like gonna be my my way of breaking it down for the sector as well to be like that that plain and simple. Well, Dorothy Roberts, author of Killing the Black Body, a scholar um, looking at this particular issue, says race is not a biological category that naturally produces these health disparities because of genetic difference. Race is a social category that has staggering biological consequences, but because of the impact of social inequality on people's health. Yeah. And I can, to I can totally see that. I mean, you can break it down to so many different levels, even if we just look at stress <laughs> um, and the fact that, you know, people of color are under like an enormous amount of pressure um, and, you know, being in like the kind of lower socioeconomic brackets, but also having to deal with microaggressions on a daily basis, institutional racism and still being poor, like that's going to have an effect on your on your physical and mental well-being and affect the way that your body is able to cope with something attacking it and then you know throw in the fact that you know you're more yeah like wasn't it like all of the bus drivers as well that have um died were like the first ones were all people of color as well we are we are in these front-facing positions we are you know the people who are you know dishing uh, uh bagging your groceries the people who are sweeping the streets the people who are you know uh driving the buses the people who are in the care homes like there is, there is so easy to then say, okay, people of colour are genetically this, that and the other and completely ignore the social factors, um, which are the real issues at play. And that's kind of what we talk about all the time, um, even like outside of COVID, right? Like um, We were talking, I think it was only yesterday in um, the meeting, we've been having very frequent um, meetings, obviously, to make sure we're responding. Um, and we were talking about also the trauma um, that it's bringing up um, especially in asylum seekers um, like really thinking about um, kind of what being at home self-isolating if that's even possible because so many of us live in overcrowded spaces but you know what being at home and being so isolated is doing to people meant in terms of mentally thinking about situations that they may have been fleeing from or running from and um, from their home countries and thinking about kind of what trauma is that bringing back 
to people? Um, and how is that, like you said, Martha, like how is that affecting people personally? I was having a conversation with Maud Goba, who uh, works for Micro Rainbow, which is a charity serving LGBTQ refugees and asylum seekers here in the UK. And we were discussing this, um, you know, coming to and being unwelcomed by a country that purports to be so values driven, right? That we look after our people, you know, British people go to other countries and say, I can't believe you have it like this. You know, we express sincere regret for these colonial era buggery laws, for example. And we just don't take care of the people who are, who are here, right? And I think that's being brought into such stark relief at the moment that we live in a, in a society that appears to be profoundly unkind. I guess this leads on to point three, right? Actively value the lived experiences and center at-risk communities. I imagine this has to be part of it, right? This part of this is, part of the lived experience I imagine is, is storytelling, is saying this is what living in this country is like for me. Yeah. And also not like, and I just realized as well, like not going back to, everyone keeps talking about going back to normal, like, but not going back to normal when this is done or is or, or kind of the next step of this kind of reverting back because some people yeah there has been some kindness shown and compassion and real kind of and what we're trying to do in terms of kind of elevating those voices I think there is a a fear and um, that then it's reverted back and um, so really thinking about how the things the decisions that are being made now um in terms of centering lived experience really are then being taken forward. Like the worst thing that will happen is that this all boils down to statistics. And I think with it being like, yeah, I guess humanitarian crisis, it is very much gonna be X amount of people died. This, this happened, it was this color, it was this percentage. And we might forget about the stories of the people who are going through this. Um, and it is our job as a sector and as Charity So White to elevate those voices and to make sure that this carries on much longer than COVID, like this kind of new attitude to listening to be to BAME people. I think we have addressed the other two points. It's time to trust the BAME voluntary sector um, to, best, to best reach those most impacted by the crisis. We need to work with organizations closest to them. We urge organizations to avoid knee-jerk relief efforts and ensure they have built-in mechanisms to work directly with community leaders. And you know what, there's, there's a lot of lessons that they can take from the mutual, the mutual aid groups that have come out and like that, that direct action and that it does work. I don't know why people have been like, don't fund these people because they don't know what they're doing. It's like, we're the closest, we're your neighbors. <laughs> we know exactly what's going on on the ground. And actually like that is, that, that I'm hoping is gonna be a really huge cultural shift um, to trust these kind of more like grassroots and BAME led organizations because they're doing amazing work and they have been doing amazing work. They're doing this amazing work without the funding. Imagine what is possible if you funded the people who are actually doing the work that really matters. <laughs> I think there's a real space and like you'll see within the paper, we kind of pose questions um, in, within our recommendations that um, organizations in the sector should be asking themselves. Um, but there's a real space sometimes I think to think about if, that particular organization is the best to be responding at that particular yeah. time. Um, like who is best place to be able to serve the community and, and to kind of, you know, we're all working towards a bigger purpose. And I think sometimes it's, it's useful for the sector to step back. So your fifth and uh, key principle to guide the sector's, the third sector's response to COVID-19 is to recognize and support BAME staff and volunteers. Talk to me more about that. 
it's, it's no secret that BAME staff are going to be the ones who are in insecure work um, um, on temporary contracts, um, zero hour contracts um, and on the front line. Um, so this is something that needs to be recognised. Um, there needs to be a lot of um, thought around who is most at risk from staff cuts, hiring freezes, furloughing, that kind of thing. I think you included a link to um, a series of tweets from Pari Dillon, who put forward some an incredible list of questions for um, those in positions of power within organizations who are furloughing or, or laying off people to ask themselves. Um, so we'll also include those in the show notes as well, because I, I imagine there are some organizational leaders listening. And so you have released this live position paper that's being updated every week. It'll continue to grow in response to COVID-19 and based on the responses from industry, what's next? How can others get involved? Is there any way that, you know, those who are working within the third sector can contribute to or take a take a part in, in this, both this live position paper and charity, so why? Um, I think, yeah, a couple of ways. Um, I think we mentioned earlier about the kind of um, this paper being done in collaboration. We recognize that there are people definitely who have much more experience um, and invite them to certainly um, share um, and bring their lived experience to the table. Um, but we've also got an event. Um, which we're hosting on the 2nd of May, an online event. Um, hopefully you can put the link um, in the notes. Um, and the aim is to really be able to highlight um, some of the key issues in that paper with other people of colour from the sector. Um, but most importantly, I think, facilitate conversation around what we do next, like how do we kind of mobilise um, as people of colour across the sector to really hold our own organisations to account, um, you know, the people that we have access to that are in power, how can we feel empowered as a community um, to go out and speak on these things that are in this paper um, and make sure that kind of, yeah, those people in power who are making those decisions are listening. Um, so I think that will be a really important um, event for us and a really important step for thinking about how we, because we are, yeah, 10 volunteers, but how we kind of bring other voices um, as well to this conversation. We don't want to do this alone. Um, and we shouldn't have to. Um, there's amazing people out there who've been doing a lot of work for a long time and we really want to make sure that we recognise that. Um, I also um, think we should, um, if, if there are any leaders um, or decision makers listening to this, um, read the paper, sign, the, <laughs> sign our open letter um, to Ring Fence um, funding for BAME organisations and also engage with us. Um, talk to us about how you can make your organization better, aka less racist. Um, we always want to have a discussion. Camilson Omer and Martha Awajobi are two of the 10 team members leading Charity So White, an organization fighting to make the third sector live up to its responsibilities to serve at-risk and vulnerable communities. You can find a link to Charity So White's live position paper in the show notes and more information about how COVID-19 is exploiting structural vulnerabilities that have existed long before now. Busy Being Black is the podcast exploring how we live in the fullness of our queer black lives. Thank you to our partners, UK Black Pride and Blackout UK, and to you, the listeners. Remember this, your support doesn't cost any money. Retweets, shares, ratings, and reviews all help, so please keep the support coming. Finally, thank you to Anthony Giles, a queer black Grammy-nominated producer based in New York City for these bomb-ass Busy Being Black beats. Ashe.
guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.